Welcome to The Lighthouse Project, a podcast put together by four women who grew up in Scientology, and we're here to talk about it. This podcast is presented to you by Children of Scientology, a collaborative effort which aims to be informative about the issues which have affected the youngest members of Scientology. In this podcast, we are going to share stories and information some details of which may be upsetting or disturbing for listeners, specifically content involving sexual assault, rape, child sexual abuse, and psychological and physical abuse of children. We encourage anyone who has been affected by these types of experiences who wish to talk to someone about it to reach out to a trauma-informed organization in their area. Now, I mentioned that Children of Scientology is a collaborative effort, but there is one person who has really been at the home, to use an appropriate nautical term, of this movement, and that is Christy, who we admire for being a caring, passionate, and deeply thoughtful person. Christy, can you tell us what has been most important for you about shedding light on the experience of growing up in Scientology? Thank you, Miriam, for that incredible entry and intro. I appreciate it. Yeah, I think for me, having grown up in Scientology and then left it at about 20, I just went off into the world and I assumed that other children like me would do the same, or they would assimilate and be happy. And so coming back decades later, I was shocked and disturbed to find so many were still trapped and unhappy or had left and really struggled. So there was just this real long-term destructive result to the child and their family. And so the more kids that I reconnected with, the more I saw the same patterns and the same story and the same outcome. And that, I think, is what has made me work so hard to try to locate kids like us, make sure that they know that there is a community and that now finally we can talk about and find real words to describe what happened to us and collectively try to find a path forward so that we can heal. That's the goal. Chrissy, that's amazing. And I think as well, what's so important is the stories that are involved and sharing those stories. Can you tell us a bit about your part in putting this project together and sharing those stories and why that is important to you? You know, it's been my experience so far that there seems to be this selection process for whose story matters and which one is relevant and which parts are important. And I completely disagree with that. I don't think that we should have our experience or existence denied any longer. I think that it's really important for us to take back our reality and be able to share what we're ready to share when we're ready to share it. And I hope that this platform is just a way for us to do that without having to navigate politics and all the other things that seem to go along with getting awareness out there for kids. Completely agree. These stories are important to us, and one that we are going to be focusing on over the next several episodes is the Danny Masterson trial. On Monday this past week, we had opening statements, and what we really noticed is that there is going to be a lot more detail in this trial as compared to the previous one. Significantly, we are going to see much more about the part that Scientology had to play in silencing, controlling, and manipulating these victims. Reading Tony Ortega's detailed reports from the underground bunker, as these details were laid out by the prosecution, I think all of us are feeling a little triggered considering the parallels in our own experiences with Scientology. 
sometimes it's difficult to know where to start because there are, in fact, so many instances of this gaslighting, this controlling of the victim's narrative, almost putting words in their mouth or taking words out of their mouth, essentially saying what they can and can't say. Two things that I would love to point out supporting what you just said. One is that the victims, Mm -hmm. as well as the perpetrator in this case, are all young Scientologists raised in and exposed to Scientology during their developmental years. And so we really can relate to that. And that's, I think, why we can really dial into this experience. But also, I would love to call out that we collectively decided that we wanted to use real language around what happened to us. And because if you can't use real words, then how can you heal? That's one major thing that they stole from us was our language mm-hmm. by using euphemisms and these hiding words. They really are hiding words. They make people comfortable talking about sexual assault and rape. And unfortunately, when you make someone comfortable talking about things like that, it normalizes it and makes it okay. And so I, I believe that, that happened to each of us all through our time in Scientology, but specifically, especially around sexual assault and rape and molestation in relabeling these things out 2D or telling oh, you that you couldn't say the word rape. Yeah, absolutely. Victoria, can you tell us a bit about some of the beliefs that you had growing up that were sort of enforced through what you learned, what you absorbed from this culture, from the writings? What was your understanding of what was sexual assault? Yes. So I was brought into Scientology when I was about 10 or 11 by my older brother. And at that time, I was being sexually abused and raped by my cousin, who was 38 at the time. And this was happening over months, I would say almost a year. And from my recollection, the abuse stopped because at that point I decided I wanted to go to the authorities because this cousin had two young daughters of his own. And I had some concerns that his daughters were not safe. So I wanted to go to the police and CPS. But before I could do that, I had to confide in a trusted adult at that time. So I told my brother, who is a Scientologist, and his wife. And it was handled very in a matter-of-fact way, as Scientologists do. And my brother advised that I speak to my auditor at the time. So when I spoke to my auditor and my brother, I was made to feel that it was not sexual assault, that I somehow had seduced my cousin, that I had created this problem for myself. And it's the Children of Scientology tagline, right, Christy, is adults in small bodies. And that's very much what my experience was, that I was told by the adults that I trusted in Scientology, but in Scientology in general, that I knew better. I was an adult at 10, 11, 12 that I should take responsibility for what happened to me. And throughout my entire years in Scientology, which was maybe a little bit over a decade, I truly feel that I was gaslit into believing that I did this to myself. Not only this, but all the bad things that had happened to me that I 
so to speak, pulled it in, right? That's what they say. So you were made to believe through the period of 10, 11, and 12 years old, mm-hmm. where you experienced sexual assault and rape by an adult male, that this was something that you were responsible for. Correct. The term sexual assault was not even in my vocabulary. It was out 2D. This person that had been raping me was married with children. And I was made to take responsibility for jeopardizing his marriage or for making him jeopardize his marriage. There was no rape or sexual assault. I think over years of receiving auditing, too, I feel that that I was persuaded in all that time that it was my fault, if that makes sense. Specifically with an auditing session. Would he run you through the instance and ask for ways that you could see yourself taking responsibility for it? Oh, (laughs) multiple times. Multiple times running through the incident, meaning for anyone that is not familiar with Scientology terms, I was in a counseling session, an auditing session with my adult auditor, and I would have to run through the molestation and the rape in very graphic detail over and over. Yes. In order to get out of that auditing session, I figured out ways to appease my auditor and the e-meter, and I would have these big epiphanies of, oh, it was my fault. And that's how I would get out of my auditing sessions. It's interesting because these days we know just how careful you need to be in your language and engagement around sexual abuse, especially with adolescents and children, and be careful with the pressure that you put upon them in these traumatic instances. And as we know, obviously, Scientology takes the opposite approach. Yeah. I just also wanted to make note here as well that it's not just the auditor that is involved in this conversation in directing these questions. We have someone that sits behind that, which is the case supervisor, and they actually will write out the procedures that are to be taken. And often they will write out the actual questions that need to be asked, the direction that needs to be taken. These are the highest trained people in Scientology Mm -hmm. that direct these auditing sessions. Right. Victoria, I wanted to ask you, when did you start to understand and sort of turn that narrative around that you had this sort of this victim shame and blame um, where you were carrying that responsibility, that burden that was not yours to carry? When did that start for you to start to unravel that? Uh, Honestly, probably not until a few years ago when I was finally in actual therapy, in intensive therapy. I want to say maybe not even five years ago, I finally realized what it was and I could name that it was sexual assault and rape. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing the amount of years that it takes. But also I'm wondering, did that come from coming across other language, other ways to understand what had happened? I think... Getting out of Scientology and starting to deprogram myself from a a victim-blaming mindset, which is what I had during my entire formative years because of Scientology, 
and meeting other people within counseling, like in group counseling, group sessions. And I just, I am so fortunate to have had a wonderful therapist. I really, I think I owe much of my healing to her because she walked me through PTSD. I didn't have a word for that. I didn't know what I was experiencing. And I had a lot of realizations in counseling that, oh, wow, I had all of these signs and symptoms as a child of anxiety and depression. And I was just told that I was out valence or something was going on with me in session. But I had words, you know, to put to what I was experiencing. Yeah, absolutely. It absolutely changes things. And that's why this is really important. That's why we're talking about these things. We're hoping to be informative about these issues and have these conversations to really normalize talking about it. That's really important. And we also do recognize that counseling is not so accessible to a lot of people. And we're kind of hoping to pull together some bits and pieces that we've found to be helpful. And what we're going to be putting together is a sort of a resource kit, which we're going to call a toolkit. And along the way, we will sort of pop things into that toolkit. And you guys can have a look in there and you can pull out whatever you think might work for you. And uh, that's something that we're really hoping to put together through the duration of this podcast. And Miriam, while you're on that subject, you had this idea of including a first aid kit for first responders in someone's Mm -hmm. trauma. And I just think that's really brilliant. And I hope that we can build that piece out as well. Yeah, absolutely. So my idea for the first aid kit is really, it's very essential for victims, their initial contact with people, the first time that they talk about it, the second time that they talk about it, the third time they talk about it. It may be with the same person. It might be with different people along a number of years. I know that in my experience, the first sort of people I have spoken to about it were intimate partners, a boyfriend in a relationship with somebody. And they didn't know how to have that conversation. And they were really great. They were supportive. It was just a real quick, this happened to me. And then we just closed the door and then that's okay. But you know, at least I just wanted them to know that this had happened to me. So that's been my experience over the years. Often we'll tell a close friend, maybe we'll tell an aunt or maybe we'll tell, you know, our mother or that sort of thing. And what's really important is that if those people that we tell can be informed about what do you do when that happens? How do you have that conversation? And also your part to play in it because it's a real minimal kind of part. You don't need to judge what happened. You don't need to make any decisions about what they say happened to them. You just need to offer some support, guide them in the direction of where they can get trauma-informed counseling, support, assistance, resources, and that's really it. So the first aid kit is going to be very simple, maybe a few steps type of thing. Thank you, Victoria, for sharing your story with us. Sure. I know that along the way, we will probably likely hear some more pieces about your story. As I know that I'll be willing to share some pieces of mine that are relevant to the trial as it unfolds. Aaron Christie as well may share some bits and pieces. Basically, it'll be up to us what we're comfortable with, how much we want to share, how we're feeling that day. And we'll just check in with ourselves along the way and see what's comfortable for us. 
So I just wanted to talk about what was in the opening statement. There was some very interesting things that we didn't see in the previous trial. And we, as touched on before, we do see that cytology is open to wide up, which is amazing. Amazing. And we are very, very much looking forward to seeing that unravel and take place. And the other few things that I wanted to touch on is that Mr. Mueller mentioned that there is going to be a toxicologist who is with the LAPD who will be talking about drug-assisted sexual assault, about date rape drugs, and about some of the common symptoms of ingesting a date rape drug. She's going to talk about how quickly they are metabolized and that there's only a narrow time to detect the drug. She's going to talk about how quickly these drugs act and after ingesting the rapid onset of symptoms that can come on and how quickly you can be incapacitated. I hope that we'll see that there's going to be a variety of drugs that they do touch upon. Commonly, we know this term, which is rohypnol. That is not the only drug. There are several types that are used. And I'm hoping that expert testimony will come in because in the previous trial, they did nominate witnesses and experts that didn't actually appear. So I'm hoping that does take place. We'll see how that rolls out and we'll hear some more about that. And he also told us that we're going to hear from Dr. Barbara Ziv. She is a forensic psychologist and she's going to talk about the ways that victims of sexual assault might react that seem counterintuitive. She's going to talk about the sort of post-incident contact and how common that is. And also she's going to talk about what is more common, these sort of attacks from a stranger or by someone known to the victim. We're looking forward to that. And we are also going to hear from a beautiful woman who's in our community, which is Claire Fridley. She was in one of the highest ranks of Scientology for many years. And she's going to talk about Scientology practices and principles. And we are very much looking forward to seeing Claire. I love her as an expert, but I also love that she did a podcast, basically a TED talk about her Scientology childhood, about how she became an indoctrinated child and an executive in Scientology from the beginning on. And it's just, I think, a super useful thing to listen to. Yeah, absolutely. She really does break it down, her experiences, particularly her relationship with her mother as well. I think Mm -hmm. that a lot of us can relate to that. It was just amazing to, to hear her own experience, like you said, Christy. And so that we got to know her a bit more rather than just framing her as this top executive. She really started from a child being raised in this system. And I wanted to just wrap it up here to finish with the closings in Mr. Mueller's opening statement. And it's it's going to give you some insight into what we can expect from here. And so I'll read to you what he had to say. The four women you see up here, you will hear what it took for these women to get into court today. And you're going to hear about what they went through when first reporting to the church and the limitations that the church put upon them and then having to report to law enforcement and the investigations. You're going to hear from these women about the long process it took for them to be here and they're here to seek justice. And I'm confident if you listen to this evidence carefully, all of it, I am confident that when I have a chance to come before you again, I am confident that each of you will be able to render guilty verdicts on all three counts against the defendant, Danny Masterson. Mm. Guilty for the forcible rape of Jane Doe 1, 
guilty for the forcible rape of Jane Doe 2, guilty for the forcible rape of Jane Doe 3, I am confident that you will. I thank you for your time. And that was Mr. Mueller. I just thought that was so powerful. It really summarizes what this case is about. These women have waited so long for justice, and it's all going to be presented to the jury to make that decision. There was so much additional detail included in his opening statement, and he was able to develop all of the characters involved this time and gave an incredible detailed storyline, seeming like from beginning Mm -hmm. to end, including all of the Scientology aspects that were not allowed last time. It seems like he's very dialed in and understands Scientology Mm -hmm. at this point even better. So I think the retrial is possibly a real blessing in disguise. I felt the same way. Yeah. And while at the same time, as Mueller so dialed in, the defense seemed to be grasping at the same straws and accusations as they were Mm -hmm. last time and no better prepared I didn't see any additional in the opening at any rate. And that combination made me incredibly hopeful for Mm -hmm. justice. Absolutely. For information, support, and advice regarding sexual assault, the largest national helpline in the U.S. is RAIN. That's R-A-I-N-N. Their website is www.rainn.org. You can speak with a trained staff member via the online chat or call their free helpline. 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. Thank you for sharing your stories and for being vulnerable and honest, sharing your truth and experiences. Please remember to check in with yourselves. This has been lots of great information, but a lot of, you know, details that could be really hard to digest, especially if you are a survivor of abuse as well. We're just so appreciative of anyone that is listening because this is really meant to be a part of community and we're here all together. So we're very appreciative as you're a part of our village. So thank you so much.